Well, we are in the very last days of Daniel. And so Daniel chapter 11, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, And if you turn there, you'll see that it is 45 verses. And so we're going to get through all 45, uh, Lord willing, this morning. And as we go, as as we begin, so Daniel 11, so we we broke it up into three sermons, 10, 11, and 12, but but really this is one chunk, it's it's one vision, it's in fact the largest, longest vision in the book of Daniel that runs from chapter 10 through the end of the book. And it's been the case throughout the point, throughout Daniel, the point is to remind or confirm to Daniel that despite all appearances, that God is in control and that his kingdom and that his people are going to survive. And that news, that encouragement was necessary for Daniel, who, if you remember at this time, is still in exile. And so last week, Pastor Will talked about the, the, the coming of the, the messengers to Daniel, and it was just one, um, it, it was one chapter, it was one sermon. That, that was just the introduction to the vision, which is what we're going to read today. So chapter 10 was just the, the explanation of, of the messengers coming and, and why they came and, and what happened in their coming and all that went, uh, went into them coming to give this vision to Daniel. So the actual vision is here in chapter 11. And so chapter 11, what we're going to read today is the reason for the messenger coming. And what we're going to see is that this vision of Daniel 11 is unlike any other part of the book of Daniel and really any other part of the Bible. It's unique in that it is detailed prophecy of the future as Daniel's reading it. It's being told to Daniel before it happens so that when it does happen, that Daniel and those who would come after him might not lose heart, that, that they and he might learn to trust God despite appearances. And so it's unique, and you're going to see that as we walk through this. But it's not unique in its message and its purpose, which is simply God is in control. And so we're going to see that easily and clearly when it comes to the rise and falls of kings and kingdoms and world powers. Daniel and all the Israelites were to fix their eyes, to to steady their hearts on the God to whom belong wisdom and might, the God who changes times and seasons, the God who removes kings and sets up kings. And so God being in charge is the comfort for God's people. As I heard one pastor say about Daniel, that the theme of the book is the God who wrote the book is the one who rules the world. And that's true. The, the God who's, who's writing this and giving these visions to Daniel is the one who rules the world. And if that's true, if that really describes reality in our world, world not just Daniel's world, but our world also, well, then that means that God's people have a lot less to be anxious about than they often realize. If God's in control, we can take a deep breath and we can exhale and we can relax. And hope, hopefully we'll see that this morning. And so my hope as we come to Daniel 11 is that in seeing this predictive prophetic vision given to Daniel and the accuracies of the details, we're not going to simply recognize that God rules like the past, not just now, but also the future because he's predicting the future in Daniel's case in Daniel 11 because He rules the world. He's able to predict the future and know what's going to happen. And so that's why God's giving this vision to Daniel. Now, we're not going to read it all at the outset. We're going to read it as we cover. So I want to pray for us now, and then we'll look at the the outline that we have uh, that we'll work through. So let's pray um, now as we go to, um, as we we look at at chapter 11. Now, Father, we, we confess that this is your word. We acknowledge that this has been given to us. And so we submit ourselves to this word and we, we receive um, your kindness in revealing yourself to us with thankfulness. And so we pray that even our time 
um, together in Daniel chapter 11 would, would be an encouragement to us that we might love you and love others uh, in response. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, there, there's two simple points that we're going to walk through. Two points. First point is going to be from, from verses 2 through 35 of chapter 11, which is the truth about kings and kingdoms. And then the second point, we're going to see the king and God's people, which is going to run from uh, verse 36 of chapter 11. And then we're going to kind of bleed over into chapter 12 just a bit. Okay, so those are two outline points, the truth about kings and kingdoms, and then the king and God's people. And so let's start there with, with verses 2 through 35, the truth about kings and kingdoms. Now, as we go through this chapter, as I just mentioned, I'm going to read each section as we get to it, but it's going to be a unique sermon in that a lot of this, especially verses 2 through 35, it's historic prophecy at the time of its writing, but now looking back, it's all been fulfilled. And so it's really a history lesson, and, and what I am tempted to do as a lover of history is to go through verse after verse after verse and show you, look, here's this, and here's this, and I would be excited, but I'm sure that you would not be excited. And so that's not what I'm, gonna, not, that's not what I'm going to do. In fact, if you want homework, if you want an assignment over Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, um, it is really simple to, to look at Daniel 11, and whether you have a, if you have a study Bible, if you have history books, if, if you have uh, the internet, um, or you can talk to me, I have lots of resources, but you can, you can research the, 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 the outplaying of these events in history that Daniel in chapter 11 predicts. I mean, it's down to the detail, and it's amazing that this is coming so long before it happens. It's fascinating. And so, so maybe you ought to do that. I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I want to do is I just want to, as we walk through verses 2 through 35, just to see how broadly, generally, how the, the rise and fall of kingdom kingdoms plays out in the time after Daniel. And the truth that we see about kings and kingdoms is that they come and go. They rise and they fall. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. And that, that transience notwithstanding, the other truth about kings and kingdoms is that they are always wanting more and more. So, so the nature of human kingdoms is, is more, 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 whether it's power or people or possessions. The, the pride of the world's kings and kingdoms is that it's never satisfied. And so it grows and grows and grows and grows and, until eventually it, it outgrows itself and it falls. And so in the middle of all that's going on here in the lobbying and the planning and the scheming, what we see, what Daniel is being told is that God's rule extends even over kings and kingdoms who, who are ruling as selfish as they can. And so there's comfort there. Well, we'll look at verses 2 through 4. Let's read those here at the, at the beginning. Here's what, what the angel, the messenger says to Daniel. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and shall go to others besides these." And so as we, as we read just this, this introduction, these first four verses, our, our minds ought to, to immediately go to chapter 8. Back in chapter 8, Daniel had a vision of a ram and a goat. And if you remember, the, the ram represented Persia, this goat represented Greece. And, and those were the nations in, in this battle between Persia and Greece. And, and here, again, he, he's mentioning these two kingdoms. And he says this great king of Persia is going to rise only to be conquered by the king of Greece, which is what we saw with the ram and the goat. In this fourth king of Persia, he rises, but, but then he's, he's gone. As soon as he is made strong, 
a fourth king, the king of, or, uh, the king of Greece, comes and, and Persia's gone. And so it's fascinating that it's just one verse that the whole Persian Empire is, is kind of put up and put down. And then, then comes this mighty king. In, in verse 3, the, this mighty king who we looked at back in chapter 8 is Alexander the Great. He, he's the mighty king, and he rises in verse 3, and, and, and immediately after, his kingdom is divided. And so he looked at how that, that was the case with Alexander, where, where he rules and he reigns, and then he, he dies, and then his sons don't take over, so then he has four generals, and his kingdom, the, the Greek empire, this, this great empire is actually divided among four generals who aren't his sons. But here again, the fact that one of the greatest rulers in all of the history of the world is given such little attention just goes to show the purpose of this vision is, is specific, and it's not to give this, this general broad history of the world. It's to give a specific focused history on God's reign and God's people. And so, yeah, Persian Empire rises and falls, and then comes Alexander the Great. Then that's divided. And four kings are, 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 are raised up after Alexander, these four generals, and they follow him. That's these four winds that aren't his kids. And then we go from, from Alexander the Great, these four kings, in verses 5 through 20, there's a focus, a, a narrowing focus to just two of these generals. And these two, these two subsequent kingdoms that come out of Alexander are the north and the south. And so Alexander, he dies. The kingdom is divided in fours. And the kingdom referred to here in these passages is the north and the south. The north is, is Syria. So if you're looking at the map, it's up here, Syria. Then, then down here, the kingdom of the south is is, is Egypt, and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies are, are the ruling families, the, the empires, the kingdoms, the dynasties that are established in the north and the south. And so as, as we're reading through verses 5 through 20, that's, that's the north and the south. It's not this unclear uh, uh, identity. It's, it's the north and the south. It's, it's Syria and it's Egypt. And these two kingdoms are focused on because, do you know what's right in between Syria and Egypt? There, there's this land of Palestine. There, there's Jerusalem. And so we're focusing in, Daniel is getting this vision on these two specific kingdoms because the, the people of God are wrapped up in the rise and fall of these two kingdoms. And so Daniel is telling this vision and he's focusing on these two. So it starts broad and it gets narrower and narrower. And so for, for Israel at that time, whoever's in power is going to rule them. Right? They, they, they're not going to be the ones that are expanding like, like Alexander the Great or any of these. They, they're just a, a little scrawny little people that, that they're ruled by whoever's in power. And so, so, so as Daniel is thinking about what's to come, the return to Jerusalem is not going to fix everything. You remember he was already told that, that after, the prince of per, after this, this prince of Persia falls, then the, the prince of Greece is going to come. So, so it's not as though we're going to return to Jerusalem, everything's going to be fine. No, instead, what Dana's being prepared for is that this small, seemingly insignificant nation is going to be a ping-pong ball between kings of the north and the south. And that's what we're going to see played out in verses 5 through 20. It's going to continue to be an overmatched, uh, underpopulated, weak little nation. And so Messenger's telling Daniel this because it doesn't want Daniel to be mistaken. He wants Daniel to know, even though things are going to continue to be rough, Daniel must know God is still in control. So look at verses 5 through 20. I'm going to read... Um, these. So follow along and remember the north and the south. This is Syria and Egypt. So beginning in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. 
but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off Egypt to, to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but he shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first and after some years he shall come on with a mighty, with a great army in abundant supplies. Now, we'll stop there at verse 13. Now, during all this time, Israelites in Jerusalem would be under the rule of the king of the south, the Ptolemies, right? This is the king of the south who's, who's continuing to hold the ground. But then verse 14, in those times shall arise, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall vow, so shall fail. So even at some point, the Jews in Jerusalem, some of the violent ones would rise up in rebellion against the, the ruling king of the south. At this point, it was, it was Ptolemy, it was the fifth. Okay, so again, th- th- this is all. You can go through and find this. So verse 15, Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the, of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for they shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So again, a reference to Jerusalem. Verse 17. He shall set his face to come with, great, with the strength of his whole kingdom and shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Verse 18, afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And so here we have, at the end of verse 19, we have this back and forth, but, but the north has now taken over and the north is ruling. And the king of the north, he, he goes again to invade. So he's going to, to, to expand his, his rule but he's going to turn back to his own land. He's going to stumble and fall. And so a commander, in this case, again, I won't fill out all the details. Um, if I keep saying that, I'm going to keep doing it. But uh, fascinating, the, the, the Roman Empire is on the rise now. And so this, this man is getting ready to invade. Antiochus, the, the, the king of the, the Seleucids, is getting ready to invade. And, and the Roman consul says, no, 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 you, you better stop. Because he'd been called for help. Rome is now on the rise. They're like, yeah, we'll help you. And so he turns back. He's warned by the commander, and so he turns back. But, but here's where, so, so he dies, but, but he, he goes back through the Holy Land. Um, but, but so then we, we get through verse 19. But notice verse 28. Let, let me read verse 28. Verse 20, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Right, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken neither in, in anger nor battle. And so here's the rise and the fall of the south, 
Right, so at the end of verse 20, we come to the end of the, one of the last kings that's going to be focused on, and, and he falls. From verse 22 to 20, things are really fast-paced. We have the Persian Empire, we have Alexander the Great, then we have these, these, these na- nations warring and, and years passing. But then as the north begins to, to rule, things slow down. And so now we're, we're honing in on, on one specific king. So we've gone to this, this one king of the north, and now he's gone. And in verse 21, here's the king that's being focused on. And, and here's, here's the main character of this vision. And this is a, a king that we're going to read about in verse 21 and following that we saw back in chapter 8. And so Daniel chapter 8 is, is the, the, the king who causes destruction and succeeds in what he does and destroys the saints. Do you remember that back in chapter 8? This, this king who wreaks havoc. Well, this is the one here. So, so read verse 21. Follow along. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royalty, royal majesty has not been given. And he shall come in without warning and obtain a king, the kingdom by flatteries. And armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Now again, like I said, a lot's going on, but notice verse 28. Here's this king who's... He's Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. And so he's the one, he's the evil, he's the contemptible one. And, and he has his sights, remember he's ruling in the north, he has his sights set on Egypt in the south. And so he goes to try and conquer it. He can't do it. And there, there's some details you, you can fill out. But he returns home with great wealth. But again, he's going back through, to go back home to the north, he's going through Jerusalem. And so his plan was frustrated. He couldn't conquer Egypt the way he wanted, and so now, as he goes back through Jerusalem, there's some people in Jerusalem, some Jews among them, who, who are planning an uprising. Because now, the two great kings, the two great kingdoms are, are, are waging war in Egypt, so now we can, we can get out from underneath them. And so there's an uprising, and, and they actually hear rumors that, that Antiochus died in battle, so, so they're ready to, to uprise, to revolt. And how do you think Antiochus feels when he comes back through and sees this revolt taking place? He's not happy. And so he wreaks havoc. He returns and he sees these people that, 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 are, that are rebelling. And so he sets war against the holy covenant and the holy covenant people. And he takes out his anger and frustration on Israel and Jerusalem. And so that, that's the first pass through. And then, then he goes back home and then he wages war again. Verse 29, at the time appointing, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, he shall be afraid and withdraw and turn back. So again, here comes, here comes opposition, so he turns back. And again, he, he passes back through, and he goes back home. But look what happens there, verse 30. He, he turns back, and he's going to be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple. 
and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Verse 33, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And so here is, this is the time that, that things that take place between 167 and 164 BC. It was terrible for the Jews in Jerusalem. Covenant keeping was made impossible. Sacrifices, festivals, temple worship, they could not worship God because of what Antiochus did there. And it was directed specifically at the Jews and at the temple. They, they could not worship God. And in fact, the temple there was, was made a mockery. In fact, the king would put, a, put an idol of Zeus on the altar of God. And, and then he would bring in pigs later. And, and these pigs, if you know about Jewish law and, and, and culture, pigs co- couldn't be eaten, but they couldn't even be touched. They were unclean. And, and so this, this evil ruler, knowing that, would, would bring pigs and sacrifice them on the Holy of Holies. Right? This, this is a desecration of the holy place. And it's terrible for the Jews. And not only that, he, he slaughters those who would worship God. But did you notice there in verse 32, the two types of Jews that were mentioned, the two types of people that that are found there? There's there's two types. There's those who violate the covenant, and there's those who know their God. And so those who violate the covenant, they're seduced by Antiochus. So, So this ungodly pagan king seduces them, and they join forces with him. But the other Jews in Jerusalem are those who know their God, and what they do is they stand firm and they take action. And so in the midst of this chaos, think about this. Think about what a testimony of the faithful. I mean, this may be those in Hebrews chapter 11 that are unnamed, who stand firm in the face of sword and and death. But also what a warning. I mean, imagine Daniel as he's he's hearing about all this. What, What might he be thinking when he hears, remember the Jews have been waiting to get back to the promised land and now some have gone back and he hears in a time in the future there's gonna be Jews who actually are are pledging allegiance to Antiochus and joining with him against the Jews. How is that gonna fall on Daniel's ears? How could the faithful Jews join this person who's gonna be destroying the temple? How could they so easily change sides? Well, the answer, according to verse 32, is that they didn't know God. I mean, here's the thing. What we see is that when a little discomfort comes, when a little suffering is heading our way, when a little backbone is becoming necessary, that's when true colors start showing, isn't it? There were Jews all in Jerusalem that said, oh yeah, we love God. Well, here comes Antiochus. Oh no, we're on his team. We don't want to suffer. They don't know God. It becomes clear who knows God and who doesn't when a little pressure is applied to God's people. And so what a warning. Do you know what's, what's ahead for American Christians? I don't. But when that pressure comes, who, who are you? Are you going to jump ship and say, no, I'd rather just, just get on with my life? Well, what are you going to do? What are your colors? Do you know your God or not? Daniel had already shown himself to be a man who stood firm and took action, and may we be found as him if that time comes. And so Daniel, surely it was an encouragement for him to know that there would always be those who followed in his footsteps of faithfulness in the midst of suffering. 
Well, then that brings us to the, the second point here, this, this final section where we see the king and God's people. Now, here is where unanimous agreement disappears. And so what I mean is that up to this point in chapter 11, no one really disagrees with the who's who. And that's because it's so pre- precise in its detail. So if you go back and look at history and, and line it up with Daniel 11, right, it, it's precise. And it's like, oh my goodness, how in the world did he know that? And in fact, the only main disagreement thus far in Daniel 11 is between those who don't believe that God can know the future and predict the future and those who say, well, that it can't, it's, it's right, but it couldn't have been predicted because God can't know the future and predict it that way. Right? That's a disagreement. They don't disagree about the facts. Everyone knows, oh, that's him, that's him, that's her, that's her. And so, so the disagreement at this point ends among like-minded Bible-believing, scripture, Bible-believing Christians. And so when we get to verse 36, that's when... That's when opinions divide. And so my challenge as we just read through this last section is to show you the reasons for this divide and then hopefully after that to show you how regardless of which, which option you take, that there are still reasons for great encouragement from Daniel 11. So look there at verse 36 and I'll read 36 um, through the end of the chapter. So just follow along and then we'll talk about why, why this is so difficult. Verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help. So there is the the passage here. And the reason for the disagreement, quite simply, is verse 36. Look there at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. The big question, who is the king? Who is the king? Who will do as he wills? Because it doesn't identify him again. It just says, and the king. Now the two main options... Are one, it's the king of the north that, that has been the subject throughout this chapter, or second option, it's, it's a transition, it's a hinge, verse 36 is a hinge, to a future king like the king of the north, the Antichrist. So those are two options. It's either the king of the north that's still being talked about, or it's a transition, a hinge to the Antichrist. And so when you're just reading Daniel 11, in the context, it seems to me that, the understanding, that understanding the king as the Antichrist is a bit, bit of a stretch. There's no clear transition. 
It doesn't say, now let me tell you, Daniel, about what's going to come. It just seems like, oh, and the king, seamless continuation of what came before. The king then would, in my understanding, would be the king that was just being discussed, the king of the north, Antiochus IV. And if that's the case, which I think it makes the most sense, it doesn't have its, it, it's not without issues, but I think it's the most, makes the most sense, then what we have in verses 36 through 45 is simply a retelling of the events that happened in 21 through 35. Because there's this, this battle between the king of the north and the south, and there's this holy land and this destruction of, of the Jews and, and things like that. So, so it, it makes sense in my mind that it's just a, a recap of what happened, a recapitulation of what we heard in verses 21 through 35. But whereas verses 21 through 35 is a play-by-play, what we have here is, is more of a, a focus on the character of this king, a slowing down and a retelling of the king and his character, specifically how he relates to all other gods. And this one, it's made clear, doesn't care about any other gods, but rather sees himself as a god, which of course would have significant impact on the people of Israel at that time who, who, who were, were refrained from worshiping other gods. And so they're being ruled by one who sees himself as a god. And so of course it's, gonna, it's, gonna not, it's not gonna go well for them. And so that's why I think it makes sense for the focus of verse 41 through 45 to be on the king's relationship with God's people. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, right? But these shall be delivered out of his hands, Edom, Moab, the main part of Ammonite. So, so when Antiochus comes, he, he wages war specifically on the Jews and their temple and those who are going to be delivered. Do you recognize the, those, those names of people, Edom, Moab, Ammonites? Aren't those the enemies of Israel? So, so when Antiochus comes in, he's waging war on the Jews and, and the enemies of the Jews, they don't care about if you're in Jerusalem, we don't care. You go free. So I think it makes sense as being understood as, as taking place between 167 and 164. I mean, it said that Antiochus killed over 80,000 Jews during that time. Again, it was, it was a time like no other in the history of Israel. And so I think that's the least problematic reading of these. However, many others, many other smarter, more godly, wiser men and women couldn't disagree with me more about that. And I'm okay with that. So maybe you read that and you think, that is, of course, the Antichrist. Well, so many do think. They, they read 36 as a transition from Antiochus to one that is a type of Antiochus, which would be the Antichrist, which is something that, that would come where he would step on the scene at, at some time near the end. And so according to this reading, all the events of Daniel 11 span from the time of Daniel to the end of time. And this description of the Antichrist lays out predictions and prophecies that are yet to come. So what we, would, what we read in, in 41 or 36 through 45 would just be things that are, that are yet to come and maybe going to be fulfilled in the future. And the main reason that people argue that, that 36 isn't Antiochus is because the details of the life in, of Antiochus don't fit as neatly alongside the descriptions of the events. And because the time frame of the verses at the beginning of chapter 12 is the final resurrection, it would make sense for the time to span there. So that's, that's the argument. So look there at verse 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael. So this, again, this is a continuation. The chapter break isn't part of the original. So there's a continuation of this vision at that time. So well, at what time? Is it the end of the end or is it the end of this time of, of Antiochus? At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who turn away who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. 
And so if you take Antiochus to be the king of 36 and following, at that time is simply a reference to verse 40 of Daniel 11, when the king of the north and south battle near the end of his reign. So at that time, Michael's going to still be sustaining his people in the midst of this onslaught of attack, which I think would make sense. Or it's an end-time tribulation where, where God's people are being attacked and, and Michael is sent to protect them. Whichever it is, the point remains the same. God's people are safe. That's why I don't think it really matters which one you, you think, because God's people are safe. And specifically here, because Michael, the great prince, who, who we find out is in charge of protecting and guarding God's people, he's on duty. So Michael is protecting, he's waging spiritual warfare, protecting God's people. And whether it's Antiochus or an Antichrist, Michael will not let his guard down. He's been sent by God for that purpose. And so, so we, we can know there's reason for hope when darkness closes in. That's the point of these last verses, isn't it? God's people will be delivered. And the point there, even the Jews who were killed under the reign of Antiochus, they will be finally delivered in the resurrection. Did you know that there's still people of God who are, who are in their graves waiting, their bodies are in the graves, they're waiting for the final resurrection? That, that day's coming. And so think about those who, who were martyred in the time of Antiochus, who are dead, they were buried and, and they're awaiting and, and they're going to be finally delivered. And just like us, there's a final deliverance. Whether the king is Antiochus or the Antichrist, the point remains that this king will fall, either he did or he will, and the time of the end will come and that God's people will finally be delivered. And so I just want to close with, I think, three points of application, and then we're, we're done with Daniel 11. And so first point of application is simply know your God. Know your God. This is what we saw on display among the, the Jews there that stood firm and took action. This knowing your God is a fail-proof strategy for whatever comes your way. Know your God. It was those who knew God who could stand firm and take action. And that's because knowing God, they, they knew his character. They knew his promises. They knew his heart towards them. They knew his commitment to deliver them. They knew God, and if you know God and his character and his commitment to you, if you know that, that changes everything. And so you can face anything if you know your God. And the alternative, not knowing God, leads to chaos and havoc and anxiety and frustration and fear. Not knowing God forces you to fend for yourself. And you can't rest. You can't relax. You've got to figure it all out on your own. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to make things work. You've got to uh, initiate your plan. And so I would say, believer, know your God. Knowing God changes how you live and, and how you face adversity and how you face trial, how you face disease. You see, whether it's us or another generation of Christians facing the rise of an Antichrist, or whether it's Jews in Jerusalem facing Antiochus, or Daniel in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, or whether it's Christians today in China or North Korea under evil, God-hating regimes, the people of God are safe no matter where they are or when they reside, when they know their God. So know your God. He is the God of heaven, he is in control, which is the second point. No, no, you're God. But second, no, God is in control. One commentator says, the purpose of this vision is not to overwhelm the reader with historical detail. The purpose is for the historical detail to overwhelm the reader with the assurance of God's sovereignty and meticulous guidance of this world. 
God does not make educated guesses about the future. He decrees it. God is in control. He's got the whole wide world. Where? In his hand. He's got you and me, brother. He's got brothers and the sisters. This is, this is theology 101. God is God and he rules the world. He's in control. And so all throughout Daniel, especially here in chapter 11, there are these little phrases and explanations or, or reasons given why certain things do or don't happen. And it, they make crystal clear that God's the one in control. There's a timeline that these kings don't know about. So you see the phrase like, the appointed time was not yet, or it still waits for fulfillment. And these are little cues or clues that say there is someone in control. And these kings and these rulers, these most powerful human men, have no say in what happens when it happens. They can try all they want, but God is in control. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. And so we can know this world is moving towards its appointed end, and that end has been set by the God who rules. And so this goes for kings and kingdoms. It goes for you and me. God's sovereignty isn't just over the big things and the, the nations and the rulers. His sovereign rule extends to the birds of the air and the hairs on your head. For some of you, the lack of hairs on your head. God knows. I mean, just think about in this world where so much seems out of our control, so much is out of our control. But when there is a God who rules and reigns, that's, that's good news, but here's when it gets even better. The God who rules and reigns loves you. He loves you. Do you remember back in chapter 10? Daniel was told two separate times, oh, Daniel, greatly loved one. Do you know God loves you? So, so if God's just sovereign and in charge and he's just going to work his will no matter what, like that can be good news, but it can be bad news. But if I know that the sovereign God of the universe loves me, that changes everything. God is in control and he's, he's moving this world. He's moving your life according to his sovereign plan. And so there's safety and security in being loved by the Lord of the universe. He will see us through and will deliver us. And so there is a hope, and your greatest hope may be realized in this, in this life, but if not, that's still okay, because death doesn't rob you of the hope that's promised for God's, God's people. Deliverance will come when Christ returns, his bride is waiting, and we are raised to eternal life. Our bodies will be united to our souls, and we will live forever with the Lord. And so deliverance is coming. You can die suffering now and still die with hope. You can face whatever comes because God is in control and he's committed to you. Which leads to the last point of application was simply this. Know that one kingdom is forever. One kingdom is forever. This has been a refrain over and over, so I won't say much here other than to point out there is a kingdom, a nation, a political entity, a kingdom that will never end. And it's, there's only one. There's a kingdom that will outlast every other one. And for the believer, we're part of that kingdom here and now. And we, you and I, are able to work towards the establishment of that kingdom here and now. God's kingdom has invaded this earth and we are now citizens of that kingdom and we can work towards establishing that kingdom here and now by living as kingdom people. 
And so we live our lives in light of the one eternal kingdom, which is God's kingdom. It's never going to end. And so you can spend your days, your values, your priorities, your relationships, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, you can direct them towards a temporary kingdom and say, this is where my hope is. Or you can say, there's a kingdom forever and whatever happens here, I don't care at the end of the day because this kingdom is forever and this is what lasts. And so we live in light of God's kingdom because it's here now and it's gonna extend forever. And so our values Our priorities, our relationships, our desires, our hopes, our dreams are to be pursued in light of the kingdom that will never end. And so for those of us who've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's son, we are citizens of a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will never end. And so you can have hope. And then lastly, if you aren't part of this kingdom, I assume that there are some here. You're not part of God's kingdom here now. Maybe maybe you've heard about Jesus, maybe you've heard about God, maybe you think he's a nice nice deity in the sky, but, but if, you're not, if you're not part of his kingdom, if you haven't been transferred, transferred, if you haven't migrated from one kingdom to another, let me tell you how you become a citizen. Because if, if you're not part of God's kingdom that's going to last forever, you will die and you will not be part of God's kingdom forever in a place far from God called hell forever. That's what awaits those who are not aligned with God in his kingdom. Because when he comes back, Jesus is going to save his people who are eagerly waiting. But he's going to judge and destroy his enemies. And so it's a life or death matter. And so I want you to know how to become part of this kingdom. And here it is. You receive Christ. You believe in his name. It's that easy. You don't have to take a test. You don't have to go through a process. You believe in Jesus. You receive the Son. Because all who do that are given the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. So, so brother, sister, friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I urge you, receive Christ, believe in his name. You are welcome. Upon faith and repentance, upon believing in Jesus, you are made part of God's kingdom. You are one of his children now. And that's our hope for you. And so if you're not a Christian, I would love to talk with you. Someone maybe next to you would, would, would be able to spend some time with you after the service and, and talking. We think this is a really important decision to be made that shouldn't be put off because the day is coming when that decision cannot be made. So don't let that day come. Make it today. Let me pray for us, then we'll sing as we conclude.